0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Scripture in Black and White. Uh, we're so glad that you've joined us again. We hope that uh, the last episode was was really encouraging to you, uh, really enlightening to you as to how we uh, got the canon of the Bible that we uh, use. And and we're thankful to Bobby for a lot of the research that he did in breaking that down. Uh, Bobby, we really appreciate it. Glad to see you again, my friend.
1: Uh, Anthony great to be with you. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for these conversations because they're not the kind of conversations that you can typically have uh, in church on Sunday morning. And they're really important because we live in a time where truth itself is disputed. Definitely the truths of scripture are contested with and there are popular authors and writers and speakers who are telling everybody you don't need to believe the Bible? The Bible's been corrupted. The Bible's not reliable. Um, <clears throat> sometimes they do this on TV shows. Sometimes they're popular writers like Bart Ehrman or uh, Dan Brown. Or sometimes they're religious groups like like the Mormons tell people that you can't trust uh, the New Testament. Or uh, Muslims will say the Quran teaches that uh, there's there's a different. These things are not true in the New Testament, or there's alternative truth. So truth itself is important, and spending time to know why we believe, as Anthony and I do, that uh, we should follow Scripture, why we believe that it's reliable, and as we're going to see today, why we believe that it has been passed down to us reliably. I think it's so important, Anthony. Anthony.
0: Oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, And we need to understand, uh, like I said, not just the historicity of it, uh, but as you pointed out, the reliability of it. Um, You know, one of the passages of scripture that we both uh, love uh, refers to uh, when when Luke talks about how he wrote um, his gospel. And uh, it was one of those books that helped me in my investigation because Luke uh, being a physician and and somewhat a historian himself um, wrote this um, with investigation in mind. Uh, He tells us in Luke one, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us, By those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And just looking at that, Luke is saying, hey, this is eyewitness corroborated. This is uh, carefully investigated so that you may be, well, he says it's in an orderly account so that you may uh, know the certainty of the thing. So, Luke, this is not just a fly by night kind of deal. This was uh, painstakingly time taken careful investigation uh so so he helped me uh and i'm sure he helped you as well
1: well here's the reality and why i'm so glad you quoted from luke there we need that like we need to know that this is reliable stuff because jesus through scripture calls us to lay down our lives literally to be willing to give up the things of this world if they ever conflict with him to give them up and give our lives to him. And so it's super important that we know that the teachings of Jesus are real. <clears throat> Not only were they real when Luke wrote that down, but that those teachings have come down to us reliably so that we can do what Luke did, and that is say, wow, we're, <laughs> we're going to rely on this. We're going to follow it. Uh, again, to quote the title of our podcast, we're going to follow scripture in black and white." to the best of our abilities.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So uh, it, it is certainly real, but not just real. Uh, it is reliable. Bobby, talk with us um, a little bit about that, uh, the reliability of the, the, the scriptures, the canon, God's word.
1: Yeah, let's talk about it because um, one of the things that happened to me as a young man growing up And I don't know if it was intentional. I don't know if somebody is trying to undermine the authority of scripture or if it was a question. I I don't remember back well enough. But um, one of the things that I was told uh, is that scripture couldn't be reliable because it had been passed on through so many people and so many copies. And they would usually say so many people, so many copies, so many translations. Now, the translation, we'll we'll come back to the translation thing because you can get an accurate translation of the original Greek manuscripts. You could, like, do that today because we know about uh, the Greek of the first century, which is Koine Greek and how to translate it. Like, that's well known. But but how do we know that the manuscripts got to us reliably? And here's the story that was told, or here's how I was exposed to it. Now, there would be a line of 20 of us, and uh, one person would say, like, a sentence, like a silly sentence, like, you know, uh, Bill loves Sue, and they went to Montreal. And then from Montreal, they went to Toronto. And uh, then that would be passed on to the next person who'd go, Bill loves, how was it, Sue, was it Sue, Sharon, and uh, they went to... uh, uh was it uh Montreal and then to Toronto anyway it's a, sometimes it's called telephone mm-hmm. by the time you go 20 generations what's said at the end has nothing to do with what was said at the beginning it might be uh Ted and Jim like to go play basketball in Quebec and you know <laughs> it would be so different and and the idea was communicate well the bible's like that and it was changed through all those centuries and uh, so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, yeah, how, how, how would this document, I mean, 2,000 years ago is a long time. Mm-hmm. And then if it's the Old Testament, uh, you know, we need to add another 1,400 to that or 700 to that, depending on which book it was. And mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a long time where how do we know it came to us in a you know, reliable fashion?
0: So that's a that's a long time of playing telephone. And so the critique is uh, the criticism is what we have now, as you did, the analogy there is so far from the original. But 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 here's a question, Bobby, that will kind of lead you into where we're going. God has a way of preserving his word. Um, yeah. Scripture tells us that that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away.
1: Yeah. So let me uh, first, Anthony, uh, I'll deal a little bit in a briefer way with the Old Testament and then we can come to the New Testament. OK. Uh, I, I do want to remind everybody of the story we told previously about how they found the Dead Sea Scrolls um, in Israel after World War II the Bedouin shepherd boys throwing rocks uh, in the desert south of Israel and uh, when they would throw rocks they to try to get the sheep out of the caves they could hear the uh, jars break they went up and they found these manuscripts the Dead Sea Scrolls some of them are dated two and three hundred years before the time of Jesus with these manuscripts like the manuscript of Isaiah completely intact And how that took a thousand years back where we could see that the Old Testament had come down to us reliably. Well, uh, we know that the Old Testament was translated somewhere around 270 uh, into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And it was used by Greek speakers throughout the ancient world. And so we can look at the Septuagint. uh, And then, of course, we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls. And as best we can tell... Uh, What happened is that uh, parts of the Old Testament were originally written in, it's called Paleo-Hebrew. It's much like um, uh, ancient Phoenicia. Uh, So you had Paleo-Hebrew, and then somewhere probably around the time of Hezekiah, perhaps around 700 BC, you have more of what what became uh, um, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. And uh, we have examples of that, as I mentioned, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are some other references in the ancient world to things in the Old Testament. Uh, and so we have those, uh, those references. We have the archaeological corroboration of so much of it. Uh, we have uh, some things like uh, a few years ago, archaeologists found a part of Leviticus there's a blessing uh, in, uh, actually, it's in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his face upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That, that's dated 600 BC. And so you've got examples of that. But for us, the biggest thing about it is the historical Jesus believed in the reliability of the Hebrew manuscript tradition. And when you couple that, that Jesus believed in it with what we knew about what they did at Qumran, to carefully make sure that each of the verses was accurately translated and to protect the writing of the scriptures, we, have, we can have confidence that the Old Testament has come down to us in, in the key parts that we need to know for life and salvation in a reliable form. And so, let me just pause there in case you have any questions about that, and then I'd like to transition to the New Testament. The New Testament documents, of course, are written well after the Old Testament, well after the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. The New Testament documents, as best we can tell, were written between 50 uh, AD or of the Common Era, 50 to 90 AD or of the Common Era. And I'd like to talk about how we know that these have come to us in a reliable fashion. But I'll pause there, Anthony, in case you have any questions or comments on the Old Testament.
0: So going back to, and and just, you know, you'll be able to kind of handle this as well, going back to the telephone game and and how, you know, we perceive that it took place versus the reality of how these uh, writings were uh, scribed. We, we, we talk about this group in, in the scripture, the scribes and Pharisees. Um, help us on the scribes portion, because they were those who were a part of those who wrote things down. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah, it was uh, considered a sacred work to uh, write down and uh, make copies of these uh, documents uh, I've been to Qumran 12 times, and uh, when you go to Qumran, you realize, and in fact, we have their writings about how careful they were. Anthony, they would literally uh, copy it, and they were so careful to copy it in the right way that uh, they would copy it, and then before they'd go copy it again, they would have a ritual bath to make sure that they were cl- clean, uh, they'd been cleansed. And that uh, they, they just really looked at it as a sacred uh, task mm. to accurately transcribe and write the Old Testament sc- uh, scriptures down and pass them on. And we're so grateful that they did that because, you know, now because they did that, we have those copies uh, from the Qumran community. And some of the, some of the manuscripts are uh, as much as 300 B.C., The famous manuscript, the big one uh, that was so well preserved is Isaiah from 150 years before Jesus, which, by the way, it has uh, Isaiah 53, is a prophecy about Jesus uh, down to great detail. And we have that copy uh, so far back, 150 years before uh, Jesus comes onto the scene. It's pretty incredible.
0: So uh, looking at this uh, book of books, uh, we know that it was written uh, across a span of about 1600 years. Um, we know that it was written by about 40 different people um, in three different languages, Hebrew, uh, Aramaic and Greek. Uh, but it's it's seamless in terms of its it's narrative about King Jesus, but then we have to deal with the, you know, the copies as well as, you know, the distance in writing. As you ta- yeah. as you just talked about, some of the writings go back, you know, not just 2000 years, but even another seven to 1400 years on the other side of that. So we're looking at about 3000 years, yeah. but even there's a span, as you've pointed out, between the writings of the Old Testament and the writings of the New Testament. And in that time span, there is some, you know, there's some updated technology, there's some new things that come along. So tell us about those newer writings.
1: Yeah, yeah, so uh, let me, me, this is strong in my mind, so I'm gonna mention it. You know, a few years ago, when uh, uh, Barack Obama was the President of the United States, he went to Israel and he was meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister ben, Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, they were at the, it's called the Shrine of the Book in Israel, it's part of the <clears throat> Israel Museum, and uh, uh, it was really strong in my mind, I remember the video of it, so Netanyahu is showing uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls to Barack Obama, and, and Obama said, well, it was changed, right? And Netanyahu goes, no, no, <laughs> it shows that it wasn't changed. Right. And uh, that that's an amazing thing for the Old Testament uh, to have been passed down so reliably. Now, Anthony, when we say that, we're not talking about, there, there were minor things mm-hmm. uh, where there's some variation, but there's no material doctrine. And this is, as we're going to see in the New Testament, there's no material doctrine where there's any, uh, any of the variants would come to play on uh, the material doctrines of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So let me let me switch to the New Testament now. So these documents written 50 to 90 uh, AD, and I want to mention three ways by which we know that they've come to us reliably. And using the telephone analogy, you know, of 20 people, let's think that's 20 centuries. Uh, Instead of uh, person A uh, whispering in person B's ear so that you have person A saying, here's what scripture says to person B and then person C. And then, you know, you got to go through 20 to get here. We actually can go all the way back to uh, what we think are the, the first writings so that we have some manuscripts. In fact, Uh, You have a copy there, if you can show uh, Mm -hmm. our our audience, those who are not listening, uh, what these early New Testament manuscripts looked like. We've got the Chester Beatty papyri, for example, from the early 200s of the New Testament. So we can go back and we can translate that. And then we have the John Rylands fragment, which goes back. It's a part of the Gospel of John that goes back to the early part, somewhere between... 101 50 AD of of documents written again from from, uh, 50 to 90 AD. So it's not like you got to go through everybody to go back. No, no, you can jump right back to the earliest centuries and translate it accurately in Koine Greek what it said from manuscripts. So um, let me walk you through uh, the three ways that we know uh, that the manuscripts have come to us reliably. So the first way is uh, preserved ancient manuscripts. Uh, I mentioned we've got uh, the the Chester Beattie papyri, uh, the Bodmer papyri, and these these again go back to uh, around 200. Uh, John Rylands is, as I mentioned, somewhere in the first half of the first century. And then uh, we have these other um, documents, uh, Codex Sinaiticus, which came from Sinai. Um, In fact, a fascinating story, Anthony. Uh, There was a, a scholar, a Greek scholar in the 1800s. His name was Tischendorf. And he went to the monastery on Mount Sinai in Israel. And he was looking for ancient documents. And he's there and he's staying with the monks. And a monk comes in to heat up the room for him, and uh, the monk is lighting these uh, pieces of paper to get the fire going in his room. And uh, Tischendorf looks down, being an expert in ancient manuscripts, and he realizes, "Wait, that monk is lighting on fire older manuscripts than I've ever seen." <clears throat> so he stops the monk, and sure enough, he finds uh, what is now Codex Vatican, uh, Codex, I'm sorry, Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, which is one of the uh, oldest manuscripts of the New Testament that helps us to see how things were reliably preserved. In fact, Anthony, while we're talking about this first point about ancient manuscripts, when we look at ancient literature, uh, the New Testament is very different than all other kinds of ancient literature. In fact, we've got a chart here That people like Josh McDowell and others have shown where you look at ancient works that are looked at as reliable and uh, how old the manuscripts of them are. So we've got, for example, Herodotus, a Roman historian, Uh, he writes between 488 and 428 BC, but the oldest copy that we have that gets close to him is like 900 years. Uh, in the common era, so it's like a 1300 year gap. uh, And there's not a lot of copies, yet everybody uh, believes that that we've got Herodotus or Thucydides, the writings of Aristotle, or the writings of Caesar, or Tacitus, or Livy. Uh, And you'll notice that uh, they wrote in a period, but the manuscript copies we have are far after that. And yet the scholars are pretty confident that we've got it right. Well, look at the New Testament. Again, written 50 to, to the document I've got there. says 95 AD, but it's really 90 AD, probably the book of Revelation. Uh, the oldest copy, again, John Rollins' fragment, one uh, 125, 130. So literally within 25 years. But here's the kicker. We have so many ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that get us back so close to to the originals, that it gives us significant confidence. Now, I'd like to mention a second area by which we can have confidence, but let me just pause there, Anthony, mm-hmm. in case there's something you want to help help our audience to see that maybe yes. I skipped over.
0: There, there were two things that you brought up that were, I, I think, we need to look at. One, thank God that these things were written down. Yeah. And so because it was written down, it's not that we're having to rely, as we've done, on the accuracy of the telephone game. If, if we expand that analogy just a bit, and, and I like what you use, you say, OK, person A is saying, OK, uh, you know, Sam loves Mary uh, and they live in Montreal. But not only did they say it, they wrote it down right so right we have a written copy of what was said so even though by the time you get down you know 20 different people we've got tim and bob love to play tennis if we go back and look at what was written when we started this and 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 the the what expands on that point is what you just said although we have a lot of historical writings about a lot of historical events many of those events or many of the writings were written hundreds of years sometimes after it took place. So we're relying a lot on memory. However, with scripture and with, with the documents and the fragments of documents that we found, some of those things are written as soon as 25 years after it happened, you know, 25 years, uh, you know, we can remember that we can see that it's, it's much closer than, four or 500 years later. So those were a couple of points, Bobby, that were just, thank God they were written down.
1: Yeah. Anthony, let me mention, uh, I'm going to cover two other points. Uh, the third one is actually something that's new that uh, Craig Evans, the scholar Craig Evans has published about recently that people didn't realize. And uh, we're going to have an extra recording again today. We're where people can get to hear Craig Evans himself. But before I mention uh, what Craig Evans brings up, and I'll just tell you what it is, is that we now know that the autographs, the originals by the Apostle Paul existed for a couple of hundred years after they were written. Now that we know that, it helps us to even have more confidence. But before I get there, let me uh, talk about the early Christian writings. So we have these... Uh, They're called extant manuscripts. In other words, Chester Beattie, Bodmer, John Rylands, where you can look at. We also have, secondly, the writings of earliest Christians. Again, I mentioned this before, but we've got like Clement of Rome writing in 90 AD. We've got Ignatius. uh, We've got the Shepherd of Hermes. We've got these, they're called early church fathers, uh, again, from 90 of the common era uh, to 160 of the common era. And then, of course, there's others beyond that, but they're quoting the New Testament. They're quoting the apostolic writings. And when we read what they say as they quote, we also see that they're quoting what we have in Chester Beatty and the Bodmer papyri, and, and the two are correlating. So Ignatius, when he talks about what Paul said. Or the Didache, which is the teachings of Jesus. Again, that's a very old document going back to 125, Didache being the teaching. And we find that they're accurately representing what was said. In fact, um, talking about the manuscripts and about the church fathers, which corroborate the manuscripts, there's a guy named Bruce Metzger, and he's probably been the the leading expert on this in the last 100 years. He taught at Princeton, and here's what he said about the reliability of the New Testament documents. He said, There are no doctrines in the church which are in jeopardy because of variance. Talking about the minor variants, The variations, when they occur, tend to be minor rather than substantive. We can have great confidence in the fidelity with which the material has come down to us especially compared to any other ancient literary work. Now, Anthony, let me mention uh, what Craig Evans has pointed out, and it's kind of exciting. By the way, Craig Evans wrote a book uh, called Jesus and the Manuscripts, where he spends a lot of time on this. It's a big scholarly book, uh, so if anybody has those kind of in-depth questions, we'll encourage you to go and get that book, but you can watch Uh, the interview that we had with Craig Evans on these. And he brings us to the third point, by which we know we don't have to play telephone. We can go back to the original sources. He points out that they've now concluded that the documents of the New Testament that were written by the Apostle Paul, or Luke, for example, when they wrote it down, those documents lasted a long time. The papyri... Uh, that they were written on, we now know, lasted a long time. In the ancient world, they would keep books for hundreds of years. And you say, well, how do we know that? Uh, We know that because of Oxyrhynicus in Egypt. We know that because uh, when Mount Vesuvius, uh, the the, uh, 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 volcano went off there, there was a library that through computer technology, they've been able to see how old the books in that library were there. And uh, we've not only got that, but we've got uh, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, I believe writing around 190 AD, talks about, hey, if you dispute this, you can go to Ephesus and read Paul's original autograph yourself. So when the Chester Beatty papyri and the Bodmer papyri that we now have when they were written, they actually had the original autographs that they could look at. And so those, those original documents lasted probably 150, 200 years. In fact, here's what we now have concluded. Somewhere around 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian unleashed a persecution against Christians. He ordered the destruction of church buildings. He ordered the, that they would find and burn the scriptures. So probably what happened is the originals were confiscated because they would have been well-known in the ancient world because people would have traveled to see them, as uh, Tertullian mentions. Uh, and so Diocletian likely destroyed them uh, somewhere around 303, 305 uh, when they were destroying the scriptures. However, there were many copies of those originals, uh, like we've already mentioned, that they did not capture and they did not burn. They have survived to this day. And uh, of course we can go and look at those along with the testimony of the church fathers and get an accurate rendition of the apostles' teachings.
0: Praise God, praise God. One thing I wanted to go back to, Bobby, uh, as we get ready to land here, Uh, You've used a term that uh, we both recognize, but I wanted you to help uh, explain it to those who are listening. You use the term autographs. Now, in our modern culture, um, the autograph is that which I seek to gain from the famous person that I went to the concert to listen to. Could I get your autograph? And you're saying, well, these people went for miles and miles to to see Paul's autographs. Are you referring to uh, you know, when Paul wrote his name on the side of the wall of the temple, Paul was here. Is that the autograph you're talking about, Bobby? No.
1: <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. Uh, when I say autograph, I meant what Paul wrote with his hand. Gotcha. He, he tells us like at the end of Galatians, uh, see with what large letters I'm writing this to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that, he means, uh, <laughs> by the way, thanks for that. The original <laughs> thing that he wrote down. Gotcha. So, what, what Paul would have written down or Luke would have written down with their
0: hands. So for, 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 for uh, clarity there, you're saying that, you know, the letter that he would have written to the church uh, in Ephesus, they would have kept that uh, yeah. in, in a library of sorts so that even though we're teaching from maybe a copy of that, if someone ever disputed what is being taught, you could go down to the library and see for yourself the autograph or the original writing for yourself. Look at what Paul wrote.
1: Yeah, that's right. It would have been kept, by the way, with the church there in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the section, where we're going to turn to uh, Craig Evans now where uh, those who are joining us get to listen to Craig describe it. Uh, he talks not just about Tertullian, but uh, another ancient writer who who referred to, that you can go and look at these. So what I'd like to do, Anthony, if it's okay, is let's, let's turn it over to uh, Craig Evans. For those of you who joined us last week, you're already familiar with Craig Evans. For those of you who may be just joining today, Craig Evans uh, is one of the world's leading experts in the manuscript evidence. Uh, I referred to his book just a few minutes ago. He's one of the world's leading experts on the archeology span of Jesus. Uh, he's a New Testament scholar. He's written over 80 books, hundreds of articles, he lectures at Cambridge, Oxford, uh, Durham, Yale, and you name it. And uh, he was joined, we joined him, uh, when I say we myself, Daniel McCoy, who's the editorial director at Renew, and, and also the author of several books, a PhD himself. Uh, we interviewed Craig about um, these, uh, this, these ancient manuscripts, and how we can know they're reliable. So let's go ahead and turn things over and listen to that interview with Craig now.
2: So by the time we get to the end of the first century, we have a baker's dozen of Paul's letters. We have four gospels. We have a book of Acts. We have some other letters. That's all there is. It's because because people kept writing things on into the second century, who were not apostles, who had no connection to apostles or Jesus, who were writing things that were odd and without precedent, couldn't be traced back to anything Jesus taught, that's when the canon consciousness began to develop. And I think it's really important that we have the historical sequence in mind because the canon, is, in a sense, is almost an afterthought. In other words, nobody thinks of a canon until after all the writings that end up in the canon have been written. And they're recognized early on with, with virtually no competition at all. But in the second century, you, you get some new ideas. I mean, the church continues to grow and expand deeper and deeper into pagan culture. And the pagans were used to mixing and mashing. That's what they did you might worship four or five different gods and goddesses. And so you hear the Jesus message and you're drawn to it. You decide, wow, this is at the top end. The resurrection really impresses me. It's great stuff. However, I miss, I miss this or I miss that or I'd kind of like to see this. And so in the second century, you start getting tweaked tweaked versions And it starts getting crazier and crazier by the time. And some of it's orthodox. You can put it that way. The Gospel of Peter greatly exaggerates the apologetic. So you have hundreds of witnesses that see the resurrection, the cross of Jesus comes out of the tomb. Well, there's nothing heretical exactly in that. But then you get Gnostic Gospels written. They want to portray Jesus in a very different way. and They have a totally different understanding of the Godhead. And then you mention the Gospel of Thomas. Here you have a very, a very strained, on steroids, asceticism. Jesus, who's the legalist extraordinaire, nothing is good. Food's bad. Sex and marriage is bad. Money's bad. Everything's bad. And so that's an extreme view. Well, none of these writings ever competed for the canon. But as these writings start popping up in the second century, That's when church leaders and influencers like Irenaeus start reminding the church, look, there are only four Gospels worth reading, and they were written a long time ago. They're connected to apostles and those who knew apostles. And of course, he's talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So don't be distracted by these newer Gospels. Shoot, He says, some of them, the ink isn't dry yet. They're so recent. So he urges people, you know, and that's where you get the the canon consciousness. And that's why eventually very formal decisions are made that really just ratify on a street level, practically what Christians and churches were doing in the first
1: century, because there really wasn't anything else. Hmm. Boy, that's good. Now, Craig, tell us about the church fathers. I believe they write from about 90 A.D. to 160 A.D., and they refer to the writings of the apostles. <clears throat> they're describing what's happening in the churches. Can you tell us a little bit about them?
2: Yeah. yeah no, no, please understand. There's a little bit of a, this is kind of a synthetic, uh, arbitrary thing. Uh, scholars invented it about 150 years ago. You're talking about the so-called apostolic fathers. Yes. It really is a misnomer because they're not apostolic. They're post-apostolic. So I guess the argument is, well, they they knew the apostles or they knew people who knew the apostles. And so it's a very arbitrary and in some ways, you know, synthetic kind of thing that's been pulled together. What it is is that in some real early codices, books that contain the New Testament, some of them would contain like the Shepherd of Hermas or First Clement or the Epistles of Ignatius. See, that kind of thing. Uh, the epistle of Diognetus, Barnabas, and so on. And so it was clear that in the second century church, there were these post-New Testament writings, if I can speak anachronistically. There were these writings that were after the apostolic age that people respected, and they weren't heretical. And they, they would even quote gospel passages and allude to Paul. They, you know, they would formally quote them in some cases. As Paul told you. First Clement will say, to remind the Corinthians, like he wrote in his letters to you a generation ago. Well, doggone it, you need to do that. And so there's a consciousness on the part of these early writings, which we call apostolic fathers, that the the canonical scriptures are earlier and authoritative. These other writings are later. They're secondary. Their authority is derivative. And so they appeal to the early authorities And, of course, some of them are pseudonymous. You know, Ignatius wrote his letters, of course, and Clement and others at his church in Rome wrote what we call 1st Clement. But uh, Barnabas had nothing to do with the Epistle of Barnabas, which we think was written in the 130s or 140s. Barnabas, the man, the real Barnabas, long dead. And some of the other writings clearly are spurious and, of course, anonymous. We don't know who the pastor or the shepherd of Hermas was and his big, long stuff. I'm glad it's not in the New Testament. Now where this stuff comes to take part a little bit in the canon story is later, you get some records, certain bishops and canon lists, where they say these books can be read in the church. And they always list Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, book of Acts, Paul's letters, But they say these other writings, they're not bad, but they shouldn't be read in church. And that's where Shepherd of Hermas gets mentioned, Clement, and some of these others. In other words, they recognize they're perfectly edifying. It's like saying, well, go ahead and read C.S. Lewis. That's great. Read Mere Christianity. But it's not going to become part of our lectionary in the church. Sermons aren't going to be preached on the screw tape letters. It's good stuff. Go ahead and read them. But they're not canon. And that distinction began to develop in the late second century on into the third and fourth. Even uh, Eusebius, the great church historian, he's, he's, he's very pragmatic. There's not a fixed canon for him. He's saying, yeah, 1 Peter's fine. Everybody accepts 1 Peter, but I don't know about 2 Peter. And he doesn't like Revelation either. It's really interesting. And so you can see, well, he's got most of the 27 books in, in his New Testament, but there are two or three kind of hanging on by their fingernails on the edge. So that kind of discussion is going on, but when you get this Dan Brown stuff, where Emperor Constantine sits down in the fourth century, and says, "Let's include these gospels and leave these others out," that's just fiction. That's very naive. That's totally not the way it happened.
3: Could you describe Gnosticism? You mentioned the Gospel of Thomas and some of these Gnostic gospels. Um, yeah, what is Gnosticism, and uh, you know what's its connection with Christianity? To kind of give us that backdrop.
2: Yeah, that's a huge mystery right away. Number one, we don't know its origins. It is debated. Scholars who are experts, their whole careers devoted to Gnosticism. They, they don't know where it came from. There are all sorts of theories. And so what we end up doing is we're describing certain writings and certain groups that are talked about who greatly emphasize Gnosis. It's spelled G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis, that's where we get Gnostic, and that means knowledge. Gnosis is knowledge. And a Gnosticos is the person who claims to have knowledge, in the plural Gnosticoi, and that's where we get Gnostics. And uh, I mentioned Gospel of Thomas. You notice I didn't say Gospel of Thomas and other Gnostic writings. I said Gospel of Thomas and, of course, then the Gnostic writings. Thomas isn't really Gnostic. I mean, yeah, it's about knowledge. It's about secret stuff. It's not truly Gnostic. So I don't, I don't lump it in with the Gnostic writings, but the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Judas, the secret book of John, and I could go on and on, the Apocalypse of James, Apocalypse of Adam. These are Gnostic writings, and they have a lot in common. They not only emphasize a very secret knowledge that you need to know if you're going to escape this horrible world, but it, they have two gods and there's a good God of light above, and that's where Jesus came from. And then there's an evil God below that made the physical world, and that's the Old Testament God, that's Yahweh. And so that, it, that, so to me, Gnostic, Gnosticism can't have legitimate roots in Judaism, as some think. I just don't see that. How in the world could Jewish people start talking that way? It's a radical neo-Platonism that says there's light up here and darkness down here. It's a dualism, two things, truth, falsehood. Truth is light, falsehood is dark. Um, Truth is spirit. Uh, Falseness is matter, physical matter. It relates to the human body. You have a spirit in your head that needs to escape this physical body, which is corrupt. And so it's a very different thing. And Gnostics glommed onto the Jesus story. They liked it. They could make it work really well. Jesus is from the God of light above. He brings the secret truth and knowledge to earth. He's looking for people who have those sparks of spirit in them. They're the ones he can uh, enlighten and show them how to escape this awful, dark, physical world and get up into heaven. And the true primal man is reassembled out of those sparks. The evil God, of course, wants to keep the sparks here because they're the Duracell battery that keeps the physical world working. And he's got evil spirits that assist him in this task. Now, this is really bizarre, but you can see how they tap tap into some of the Bible's teaching and they tap into the Christian message. And they exploit it. And and the Christians found themselves in the second, especially late second century on into the third century. It was a death struggle between Christianity on the one side who says, yes, Jesus was Jewish. He was God in the flesh, but real flesh. He was fully human. He really did die on the cross. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a switcheroo. It wasn't somebody else. It was Jesus. And, uh, and so trying to keep the, everything together in a monotheistic fashion, that's what Christians were doing, whereas the Gnostics are saying, no, let's go radical dualism, two gods, one's good, one's bad. And, of course, then the, the, the Roman authority is, is you know, smacking down on Christianity too. And, you know, it's amazing. Christianity survived the second and third centuries.
1: So, Craig, what, what would you say uh, succinctly, to people who will often say, "Well, hey, you have your books. Why, you know, why didn't you? Why don't you accept the Gospel of Thomas? Why don't you accept some of these other books?" What what do you say in a short fashion to answer that? Yeah, that
2: comes up all the time, and so I say, "Well, have you read them?" When I have students ask me, you know, "I don't understand it. Why was why was the Book of Enoch left out of the Old Testament or the Testaments of the Twelve? Or why were these other, why, why, why do Protestants reject the books of the Apocrypha, Tobit and Judith and other things like that? Why did they leave out the Gnostic Gospels or these other writings, these books of Acts, the Acts of Thomas or the Acts of Peter or the Acts of John? My answer is, well, why don't you read them and you tell me? And that always settles it. They come back, uh, and I wish scholars, all scholars had the sense of students. They come back saying, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. And that's exactly it. They had no idea. It really makes me wonder, did Dan Brown sit down and read the Gnostic Gospels from beginning to end? Or did he just read the one passage in Philip where it says Jesus loved Mary more than his other disciples and often kissed her on her? And then there's a blank. So you can pick a verse out of Philip, a verse out of the Gospel of Mary. And you can say, oh, wow, here's a whole new understanding. Jesus is a real guy. He's in love with Mary. Maybe maybe he married her. Maybe they had children. But if you read the whole thing, you realize, no, that's ridiculous. And no wonder the church said no to these writings. They didn't have to wait for Constantine to come along and, quote, uh, collate, whatever that means, collate the New Testament. That's the dumbest thing. I, I wish I had Dan Brown as a student years ago. Uh, history would have been changed.
1: <laughs> so, so Dr. Evans, uh, if I get you right, what you're saying is the New Testament books, especially the Gospels, they're written somewhere between 50 and 90 AD in the first century. Yeah. There's nothing in that first century to compete with them. Yeah. But coming into the second century, there's these other books that are coming up. And then the case of the Gnostic Gospels, they're actually trying to act like they're inspired, and we should use them. But you're saying there's no basis in history. And then in terms of the content, there's such a difference that just reading them helps you to see the differences there.
2: The Gnostic Gospels uh, could never have been written in the first century for the simple fact that the early church was, uh, you know, its first several years was 99% Jewish. And the idea that somebody could write a Gnostic gospel, say, in the year 45 or 50 or 60 and start, you know, in other words, be just as early as the canonical materials and compete with them, it's impossible. Because no, no Jewish reader would accept the idea that the Lord, Yahweh, who made heaven and earth, who made the earth and said, it is good, who made humanity in his image, turns out to be the bad God who is insanely jealous, who is corrupt, and there's a good God somewhere else, Nobody. the only way that kind of an idea can get any traction is to go deep into the second century where you got people who are not Jewish, have no connections to the synagogue, no respect for the Old Testament, they don't understand it. In other words, their roots and their context are totally different. And so it sounds plausible to them because, well, they're 99% pagan. So they're willing to pick up a few percentage points of Christianity. Let's call him Jesus instead of Dionysus and, uh, you know, or Hermes, we're going to call him Jesus. And he's the one that brings the truth from the good God above down here to earth. And so we're privileged. We're, we're elite. Cause we know that none of that could have happened in the first generation of the church.
3: So, the New, the New Testament writers, uh, kind of back to the question of canonicity, you said they, they weren't really self-consciously writing canon material. They, they weren't necessarily aware of what they were writing um, in the sense that kind of what we have about the New Testament. And so um, why, why would we then see it as canonical inspired writings when maybe the people who wrote it weren't clear on what exactly it was that they were writing?
2: Well, that's a good question. Fair enough. Now, just because they don't think of themselves as writing books for a New Testament or writing books that will be included in within the covers of something called the Bible, the, the, they certainly thought what they were writing was authoritative and should be read again yeah. and again. Yeah. And you do pick up on hints of that in Paul, especially. Uh, I, I think Second Peter alludes to Paul's letters in an interesting way as well. But Paul will say, like in Colossians, he'll say to them, now look, you read this, and then you read what I wrote to the Laodiceans, and let them read what I wrote you. And Paul, uh, I think there's an awareness. He he says, if you're a prophet and spiritual, you know what I am writing to you, see, is, is the truth. It's from God. And so there's an awareness that what he writes needs to be read. And I think that's an important precursor, or you might even call it an incipient uh, canonical awareness. So I think that that answers the objection of, well, look, if they didn't think of themselves as writing the New Testament, why should anybody look at it as a New Testament uh, years later? No, they they saw it as... So if Paul were here with us right now, if Paul were to uh, join our conversation... He'd say, "You mean my letters are still being read?" We'd say, "Yeah, you can't believe how many scholarly commentaries have been written on them. Uh, your theology has been assessed." He would go, "Oh, that's great! I'm glad I wasn't wasting my time. This is wonderful." That would and be. And he did dream. write,
1: Craig. He did write when he was writing as an apostle, right? Starts oh, sure. With Ephesians chapter one. You know, this is from God. I'm writing to you as an apostle of Christ Jesus, telling you know the church how how it's supposed to be. We, we like to say it this way, that the teaching of Jesus through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is just as much the teaching of Jesus through Paul or through Peter, uh, that, that God's using them in their apostolic role to tell us the norms of the faith.
2: Another way of looking at it is, is if these guys wrote these things in the second half of the first century, all these letters, four gospels, book of Acts, to edify the their generation of Christians, well, why would they think any differently? You know, why would they, would they want all that stuff to be thrown out when the year 101 rolls around? Of course not. And so they would want their teaching, it's the teaching of Jesus, it's applied very thoughtfully to a Jewish and sometimes pagan culture, and that's what's changed. Technology's changed, but people are still people. Same moral issues, same confusions, same divided loyalties, uh, same ignorance. And so that's why the church wisely, and look, every generation ratifies it. Every generation takes another read of the sacred writings, writes a whole new series of commentaries and theologies. That's actually good. At no point should we say, look, you know, John Calvin had the last word, or J.B. Lightfoot wrote something 150 years ago. We don't need anything else. No, every generation takes a hard look at the text and its original language, produces new translations because the English language and all other modern languages continue to evolve. And that's an ongoing task of interpretation, correctly understanding what it meant originally, how it applies now, And we, every generation, should
1: wrestle with that. So, Dr. Evans, um, what we have then coming into the second century are these documents written by the apostles or those associated with the apostles. And then we see these other books coming up. uh, And yet there is within the church and in church leaders a sense, no, we've been following the apostles' teaching. I'm told that uh, around 170... AD, or of the common era, Irenaeus uh, uh, explains the concept of the New Testament canon, although it's in rough form, and the main contents. In other words, he's saying, hey, we've been established by these books, they're the guide, even though it's not a formal decision yet. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. I would date it probably a little closer to 180, but uh, by that point, Uh, There's no question in Irenaeus' mind, there are only four Gospels that are early and have apostolic connections, and and they've been around for now 100 years, uh, plus a little more in the case of the Synoptics, and uh, these newer Gospels that compete with them are very recent. They are eccentric. They have false teaching in them. Some of it is just sheer nonsense. They lie. They claim to be written by apostles, which is another indication of pseudepigraphy. By the way, that really sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, There are two really important points that need to be made. Nobody lays it on thick in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, Matthew doesn't start off with, I, Matthew, you know, I'm up on the Mount of Olives praying, and suddenly the sky lit up, and an angel tells me something, or Jesus appears. Do you realize that's what the 2nd and 3rd century... Uh, Apocryphal Gospels do. I'm John. I'm weeping. Oh, what do I do? Jesus was put to death. He's gone. Boom! Heaven lights up. Jesus is there and says, okay, now here's the secret stuff. And so that's what they do. They really lay it on thick. Even the Gospel of Thomas, which I said is not really agnostic, but these are the secret words of Didymus, Judas Thomas, claiming that Thomas is the twin And, of course, the inference is twin brother of Jesus. So that's why he's got the straight poop like nobody else. Well, that's what these 2nd and 3rd century Gospels do. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, we know about the public Gospels. They've been around forever. This is new stuff that's secret, and it's for the elite. It's for those who want to take it to a new level. See, that's that's the game. And then they claim, well, it's from Mary. It's from Philip. It's from Thomas. It's from uh, somebody else. It's from Jesus himself, by the way. He wrote stuff down nobody knew about. And it's been laid away, which is basically what the word apocrypha means, laid away. And now, poop, up it comes. It's almost like Joe Smith in the Book of Mormon. The
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, tablets, some angel tells him, you know, there's some stuff in this cave. And, oh, my goodness, a whole New Testament and he's looking in his hat at his peepstone and he's translating whatever it is into King James English, whatever he did. I mean, the old apocryphal texts feel the same way, same kind of story.
1: So uh, if we go with Irenaeus then around 180, it's not until 367 that we get our common list of the 27 books. And according to Princeton's Bruce Metzger, they used three criteria. Number one, as we've seen from the beginning, that it had to have been written by an apostle or the associate of an apostle. Number two, it had to teach the orthodox faith of the apostles, and it had to have been widely accepted in the earliest churches from the earliest times. Craig. Anything you want to add to that, Craig? No, not really. Uh, I think he was right,
2: and he's being descriptive, not prescriptive. He's not saying this is what it should be. He's just observing that this is the way they talked. And uh, we have a great example of that. Um, the pragmatism, you might say, of the early church uh, in about the year one, uh, in 140 or so, we think the gospel of Peter, like I said, it's not heretical. It's weird. It's false in places it, the walking, talking cross and all that big, tall angels whose heads reach the clouds. But um, there's not any weird teaching exactly, and so one of the bishops uh, in Syria said, "Oh yeah, if you want to read that, that's okay." And when he said if you want to read it, he means go ahead and read it in church. Well, somebody gives it to him. He he learns more about it. And goes, oh whoa, wait a minute. And he sends a letter out to all the churches under his charge, and he says, "Don't read it, don't read it." He says this is full of weird stuff and. False teachers are using it and so on. And so what's illustrative about that is that's the canon test. So if it's apostolic, which this bishop, Serapion naively believed Peter was, and of course it's in the first person, I, Peter, you know, just like typical apocryphal stuff. And he thought it was an apostolic, and there was no obvious weird non-apostolic teaching in it. And where he was slipping up, he, he should have known this. this work is not known anywhere. And it's popped up recently in Syria, you know, and we're 100, you know, when he was, when he had this conversation, it was about 190. So just think about that. He's more than a century and a half removed from the life of Jesus and uh, more than a century removed from when the Synoptic Gospels were written. He He didn't have his thinking cap on. Then when he found out it was full of weird stuff, that's when he put on the brakes and did the right thing and said, quit reading this. So that's why I say the real test early on was what should be writ- read
1: in church in the Old Testament and the apostolic writings. That was it. Okay, that's good. I, I want to let Daniel in here, but I have a question. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna try to state it carefully. All right? Here's the question. Were the books made authoritative by the church, or were the books authoritative because of the apostles? And they were affirmed by the church. The latter, yeah. can you the explain that? recognize the authority. Because this is uh, um, uh, this is an erroneous thing that is sometimes shared by um, Roman Catholic scholars. I was taught this at uh, working on a, a philosophy degree that uh, we should trust the Bible because the church gave it to us, and it threw me off. And then I did my research, and I found that that's not true. The the apostolic teaching created the church, and the church was functioning, and the church just acknowledged from the very beginning it was established by the apostolic teaching. Can you address that, Craig?
2: Yeah, I can. I mean, we're almost splitting a hair, but it's a very important hair. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church, of course, wants to be a lot more generous in allowing post-biblical tradition to come in and shape doctrine and practice, which, you know, I'm showing my cards. I'm a Protestant. That's one of the reasons why it would be hard for me, impossible for me to be a Roman Catholic, because there's just a little too much post-biblical tradition. We all have it. You know, you can be a Pentecostal. You can be a Baptist. You can be as low church as they come, and there's still going to be post-New Testament, post-biblical tradition. The trouble is, is when that tradition begins to undermine the apostolic teaching, the teaching of Jesus himself. And I have a very good friend. I'm on his radio program once in a while. I won't mention his name, but he has a very popular radio program on a Catholic network. And, uh, and of course, he has me on the show. And then Catholics nag him and say, why do you have that heretic on the program so often? Well, anyway, um, I've been to Israel many times. I've been to Nazareth many times, and I enjoy visiting the uh, Basilica of the Annunciation. And it could actually be on top of what, well, it's an authentic first century Nazareth house. It it may be, it's the house, Mary as a young woman, where she grew up. I mean, I don't know, it could be. In any case, you go inside, you're not
1: in your head, I gather you've been there. You go yes. inside and you turn around by the way. You... By the way, the curator of the museum at the the church that you're talking about in Nazareth, I've spent a lot of time talking to him. He tells me they're 90% sure it was Mary's house.
2: Okay. I don't know if I'd say 90 myself, but I think it's reasonable. Well, you walk in, you've know, got these arches that kind of that wall around the whole part of it. You walk in, turn around and look at what's on the wall that you've just crossed under. And in Latin, it confesses Mary as co-redemptrix. Co-redeemer. That's false teaching. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a nitpicker here. I would like to know how that confession with regard to Mary squares with what Paul clearly states in 1 Timothy 3, See, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Jesus Christ. He doesn't say there are two. There's only one Redeemer. Only one person died on that cross. I know Mary was at the cross, and it must have pierced her heart. I understand that. I have total respect for Mary. I don't mean to demean her in any way. And I think we Protestants don't think about her enough. But she's, she's not our savior. She's not a co-savior. She's not the co-redeemer. You know, she's not a
1: mediator. Yeah. yeah. And so that,
2: that's tradition that goes way too far.
1: Yeah. I just, uh, and I want, I want people to know, I have a lot of respect for uh, Roman Catholic people. I do believe that there are believers in the Roman Catholic Church uh, who, you know, have the Holy Spirit. But this is, a, this is a, an important objective point about the authority of Scripture. It's the apostolic word, and it was the authoritative apostolic word from the first century. And it, you know, the idea of it establishing churches, I I think is... Well, I can add a
2: little bit more to that. You know, um, that's why the church, uh, the reformers said, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, scripture only. That is, only Scripture is our A source of authority. It isn't the church that says, no, we have the authority, and that includes then the scriptures and this other stuff and this other stuff. And so I agree with the reformers, sola scriptura. Their other uh, cry was, ad fontes, get back to the sources, fountain or source, ad fontes, back to the sources. And that's why they went not to the Latin but to the original Greek of the Gospels. And I agree with that. Now, here, let me just, the way you pose that question, let's ask this of Jesus, instead of asking it of the Bible. Did Jesus derive his authority from those who believed in him? Of course not. He possessed authority, and those who believed in him recognized it. Those who rejected him did not. Jesus' authority was not contingent in any way on the reaction of Pharisees or Sadducees or anybody else. Jesus had his authority from where? As he said, he came, came from his Father. He does the works of his Father. He teaches what he's told to teach. His authority is a divine authority, whether anybody recognizes it or not. And that that goes to those he teaches, and he promises that his Holy Spirit will guide them. And these are the guys that produce Scripture. So the authority of Jesus, in a sense, is passed on to the authority of Scripture. And I think the uh, Reformers recognize that. The early church recognized that. And so the idea that you get a bunch of bishops together in the Middle Ages, and they say, well, we have the authority, so we're going to make some decisions, that's
3: getting the logic turned upside down.
1: Yeah, Daniel, I think you were ready to. You had a question.
3: Yeah. So everything you said there makes really good sense. I think one uh, one question that people might have is the tw- the finality of the twenty seven books um, wasn't arrived at until later. So if if we take the the finality of the twenty seven canonical books with the seriousness that, that we do, um, then don't we also kind of invest the, you know, the church of the time with um, some some authority over the the canon? Does, it, does that make sense? No. Uh, well, I
2: mean, yeah, your question, Daniel, does make sense, but I I disagree with with uh, I guess the gravity or the seriousness that's behind it. I would argue that ultimately it still comes down to a recognition of the authority that's there.